Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of 26.1 AI Podcast. Today, we're excited to have Michelle Lopez join us, and we're going to discuss the challenging aspects of collecting data for voice and AI. Hello, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Michelle, we've spoken a little bit already um, in a different context, but let's kick it off with how you got started with computing, because I think that's very interesting, where you ended up in the Middle East and in Thailand teaching yes. AI at some point. Yeah, so I, uh, I grew up in France. I'm, a, uh, I'm French in, uh, originally, and I, I studied AI in like 80, 85 or so when uh, nobody knew what AI was, uh, and then yes, I, will, I was sent by the by the French government to teach AI actually in Saudi Arabia. Did that for for a year and a half or so. Then I moved to Thailand, where again I taught AI over there in the university. And well, AI was way too young at that time, and so I could you know it, it's not something I could like explore uh, professionally. So I I, I switched to actually. Uh, uh, just writing, developing like general purpose business software for, for companies there. And I uh, started by a uh, small software company in, uh, in Thailand. Uh, then I got recruited by a, a larger startup, uh, first in Thailand, then they moved me to Hong Kong, then they moved me here to uh, in the US in, uh, in the Silicon Valley. Did that for another two years or so. And then I was, I was laid off in uh, 1999. And then after after a few different things, I decided to to turn to translation. I didn't want to do software anymore, so I turned to translation. Started in a small company, um, and then we we started uh, adding. Initially, it was only English to French, but then we started adding languages, adding services, and uh, and a few years ago, what happened is uh, uh, some of our uh, large tech clients here uh, approached us to do uh, to help them uh, on on their voice assistant. Uh, in different languages, and so that's yeah, like you said, it's uh, some serendipity here. That uh, at the end of the day, I, I I'm coming back to AI from a, from a different angle. Uh, voice assistants are a big hot topic right now. But before we get to that, I'd like you to touch a bit on AI back in the 1980s. I guess it would have been early 80s that you studied it. Was it what that was not probably a popular major at the time, or wasn't it uh what was that back then no that was that was the yeah nobody knew about ai i mean uh when when i studied ai i mean it was at a time where the first uh ibm pc was on so it uh, was uh, out in the market so yeah there was there was uh, there was nothing nobody knew about anything but uh surprisingly if you look at uh what people are do doing now with uh neural networks and things like that i mean this is exactly the same thing as what I was teaching in uh, at the time, uh, the, the the difference is is not very important. I mean, the the, the algorithms, uh, the training algorithms, of course, have, have improved, but the, the main the main difference is the computing power. Uh, at the time, you could only do a network with just a few nodes, and so you you could not do much. But now, you know, the I don't know how how many billion times faster. Uh, computers go so that's but again as far as uh, the the technology the what's behind AI is hasn't evolved that much actually. What kind of computational machine are you using at that point in 1985? I mean, your students, if you give them an assignment, where are they running this on? 
Uh, at the time, uh, I think it was just before the S four hundred. I mean, you were you were working on like uh, pretty big computers. I mean, that was after the, the the tapes and all that. But it was just the 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 beginning of those very large computers where you you know you would have to uh, uh, input your program and uh, on on a, on, a, on the terminal. Uh, uh, and then while I was a student, that was the the time that the first PCs uh, arrived. So that was uh, that was a big uh, the big uh, uh, novelty at the time. And then now, fast forward to E2F. Um, what sort of technologies do you guys surround yourself with today compared to that? So uh, we, we have kind of two arms in our business. We have a, a, a tr translation, uh, localization uh, side, and we have a data collection side. So on the, on the translation side, uh, when I started 15 years ago, we, we were only using uh, you know, humans, basically translating and reviewing every piece of uh, document websites. Uh, but nowadays, we, we use a lot of uh, uh, AI in the sense we use uh, machine translation. So we don't, uh, machine translation is not perfect, but, uh, you know, in the, in the last few years, it has come to the point where uh, you cannot use machine translated content immediately on a website, for example. But uh, a, a good translator uh, can review uh, the output of machine translation and increase uh, his or her productivity by maybe depending on the on the topic uh, and the, the language between 200 and four five hundred percent so it's, it's it's a tool that we use daily basically so for I would say like for marketing content and things of very uh, high level uh, linguistic, uh, nature, you you don't use uh, machine translation. You start from scratch as a translator. But as as soon as you're talking about uh, technical documentation, about uh, you know many pages on on, on your website, uh, you you can you use you use machine translation as 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 the first pass, uh, and you just review the output. And this problem is so, not completely solved yet, right? I mean, it's it, there is an error level still, correct? Yes, there is still an error level. So there's, uh, but but um, as far as uh, machine translation engines, uh, uh, well, you have what the vanilla ones, you know, that you can use like the Google Translate and all those. But then professionals, uh, we, we use a custom translation engine. So we uh, we train a specific engine on a particular content, right? So if I have uh, if you if if I have a lot of content for for a particular client that has already been translated by humans, I, I will use that content, uh, multilingual content, to train an engine. So based on that, whenever I I, I present the engine with a with a new sentence in English, uh, the the translation will be using uh, the the terminology that that particular client is using. We may be using uh, uh, their style as well. There's going to be a few mistakes here and there, but overall, the, the quality will be pretty good with those custom uh, uh, custom trained engine. On on these translation engines, are they geared for a specific language family? Uh, they they do work in uh, differently in different languages. Yes, so obviously the the when the the, the sentence structure. In some languages, it's very close to English. Uh, the the quality would be better, right? So uh, Dutch, for, for example, is a is a very good example. 
because uh, Dutch is, is interesting because there's not too much content available publicly right, to train the engines. Uh, so you would say that the quality wouldn't be very good. However, because the sentence structure is very similar to English, the, those engines work pretty well. Now you have languages like uh, like Japanese, for example, where the sentence structure is almost reversed compared to the English. In most cases, they put the, the, the verb, for example, at the end of the sentence instead of, you know, at the beginning or close to the beginning, like in English. So that's the, the engines have uh, have more trouble to, you know, to to provide very good quality output but still even in, in those languages it's it's, uh, it's working fine so the, the 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 languages where it doesn't work well is uh, the languages where there's not a lot of content publicly available so the engines are hard to train and the sentence structure is uh, is quite different from english so when you have the combination of two then the quality goes down so which languages haven't you handled yet uh, well, typically, since we we work in, uh, uh, we translate a lot of websites and apps and uh, uh, marketing material for tech companies. So we tend to to usually translate into ten to twenty languages. So that's uh, that's usually what those companies do. The, the the very large guys, the Microsoft, Google, and all those people translate in over a hundred languages, but most uh, most apps would be translated in ten to twenty languages because that you cover over ninety percent of the worldwide market with the uh, with the ten largest languages. So typically, people would translate in European languages: uh, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, German, Dutch. Uh, those are the main ones, and then in Asia, in Asia, you would translate in Japanese, Korean, Chinese, uh, uh, traditional for Taiwan and Hong Kong, and simplified Chinese for for China. And that's you know with that you already cover a big size of the market, especially since uh, you can use your your Spanish with a bit of difference, but you can use that in Latin America. Same for Portuguese and Brazil, so you cover. Uh, a lot, and then uh, some companies. So when you have uh, you want to expand a little bit your uh, globalization efforts, then people would go typically in uh, uh, Russian, Turkish, Indonesian, and uh, by that time you're about you know almost twenty languages, and you cover you know big uh, big amount of people. In the Japanese example, where the translation engine doesn't particularly handle it in agglutinative uh, yeah, agglutinative language like that is that a sense where it fails fairly consistently in a certain way so that an expert human translator can identify that and they still get a productivity boost yes 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 even in Japanese I mean in pretty much in every language even if the quality is uh, unless the quality is really bad but uh, uh, even if the quality is uh, kind of average there's a productivity increase uh, compared to starting from scratch uh, and again, I mean, you could go to several hundred percent, uh, uh, especially if you what we are trying to to uh, tell our clients is like when if you produce an English uh, source, which is clean uh, and there are actually tools to do that. There are tools to that, that will help writers to produce English content, which is, you know, fluent, like uh, simple sentences. Uh, always use uh, the, the the same word to, uh, for the same concept. Uh, things of this nature. You, uh, avoid sentences with uh, uh, you know subordinates and things like this. Uh, then pretty much uh, every uh, even like a standard 
a machine translation engine would work pretty pretty well and then the productivity would increase by you know again by a factor of several hundred percent in some cases uh, the, the the most complicated thing for us is to convince translators to use that because may, many translators particularly freelance translators uh, are you know proud of the the way they write right so if you tell them well sorry uh, you're not going to be able to translate from scratch anymore. You're going to review what has been translated by a machine. Well, they, they, they don't like it, right? So we've been, the whole industry, the whole translation industry has been uh, kind of fighting. I mean, the companies have been fighting against the, the freelance translators to get them to, to adopt uh, the technology. I mean, now, nowadays, people going out of, just out of school, translating just out of school, are more uh, willing to to do that, but uh, uh, people who've been translating by hand from scratch for you know 15, 20 years, they 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 they, they have a hard time uh, understanding that well, it's better for them, it's better uh, for for everybody if they they accept to to review what has been translated by a machine. Isn't there some uh, human in the loop or a way that they can be involved in that process to help you know build? you know, the data set to use for better translation? Uh, initially, yes, but they, they do that. Uh, they, they do, I mean, all, all those engines are being trained by content that is translated from scratch uh, by humans. So they do participate uh, in the process. And then when you train a specific engine for a particular client, they are, they are involved in the uh, uh, what's, what's called terminology management. So every client there's two things that you do for a client and that you try to to train the engine upon is the terminology uh meaning that uh, every company uses particular words whether it's in english or in other languages you need to make sure that uh, you capture uh, uh exactly their industry and uh, the way they want to uh, talk about their products and also the style so uh for example they are like in European languages, uh, whether it's uh, German, Spanish, French, there's always uh, two ways to address a user. You can be formal, use the Z in German or vous in French or usted in uh, Spanish, or you can be informal, use a do in German, tu in French and uh, uh, tu in, in, in Spanish, right? So that's very important, like different, different uh, companies uh, addressing their users in different markets will want to be more formal or, or, or less formal, right? Usually, most people will use the informal form in German, kind of the formal form in, in, uh, in French, and in, but in Spanish, you, you know, it's, uh, uh, it depends. So, yes, when you train the engine, those are things that are very important. If you train the engine with the wrong level of formality, the wrong terminology, then the translators will have a lot uh, more work to do in post-editing. So it's important to involve them early in the process. Michelle and I, we spoke abstractly about some of Mozilla's efforts in getting some speech tech going on, on some of their programs. And Michelle, I shared with you the challenge they have. They have a common voice project where I see as of today, they've validated 68 hours of uh, recordings that people have contributed freely. Maybe get into the uh, sense of scale needed to really to yes. be effective for these voice assistants? Yeah, it, it depends what you want to do, right? So uh, uh, when you launch a new voice assistant, 
uh, and that has been the case with all you know the big names of the market. They they've been training, they've been using data sets uh, that are I would say like mainstream English spoken by mainstream uh, Americans, right? Uh, I think you, there's a podcast uh, uh, that you recorded the other day, and then the again about Mozilla Voice where they say that they trained that by having just you know I think students or I, I forgot who that was uh, reading from public domain books, right? Uh, so yes, you get you you get to a certain level uh, this way, but if you uh, if you want to really to address the general population and all domains, uh, this is going to very quickly show its limitations, right? So you, uh, I mean, everybody, all of us have used voice assistants. And uh, for example, for myself, uh, you may have noticed I have a French accent. If I talk to my phone, you won't understand me, right? So if uh, uh, anybody who, wants, uh, who has a voice assistant would like to, you know, my voice to be understood, well, they will need to to have thousands of hours uh, uh, of uh, people with a French accent speaking English. Uh, if uh, if if you use only a model a model that's been trained by people who were born in the U.S., uh, it's not going to work. So, I mean, someone's going to get left out, right? I mean, that's just it's impossible to do everything for every exactly. Is there is there any concerns you have about? the fairness of that, like saying that a certain, you know, race or social class or whatever may get left out of a conversation, not have these tools made available to them because the model wasn't trained on their language. Uh, I mean, this is not, you know, my personally, uh, I mean, I feel left out, right? You know, I'm, as I said, I'm uh, this French guy with this French accent, so I'm left out. So I'm, uh, I tend not to use it, right? So uh, I think uh, uh, your, your previous speaker was explaining that, right? That people have, a, have an emotional uh, uh, reaction, right? When they are, even my last name is mispronounced, right? Uh, my first name is mis- mispronounced in English. My mas- last name, which is a Spanish last name, if I use my, my voice assistant in, uh, in uh, setting up in French, he will pronounce it improperly, right? So he will not say Lopez, he will say Lope because it thinks it's a, 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 a verb that is uh, the easy in French is a conjugation of the verb, right? So yes, people have an emotional attachment and that's uh, that's uh, that, that's a little bit of an issue that uh, uh, I think all the all the large companies are, uh, are facing nowadays because they realize that uh, the, the the voice and the recognition of the voice is, is is very important for people. But it really reflects. I mean, it's, it's ironic, you know, that you're the creator of some of this technology, and you're also less understood than some. But it really kind of shines some light on the idea. There's places where this technology may not belong. Are there any areas where you think? You know, it should never be. Do you ever see any spaces where you're, you're like, "Well, we're not ready for that"? What we are doing here in this uh, in this industry is basically we are we are collecting data based on our clients' requirements, right? So, if my our client uh, wants to, you know, improve their understanding of, uh, as I said before, software engineer or movies in a particular setting or whatnot, so what we will do uh, as a company is. Uh, uh, recreate uh, the the environment, right, uh, and then hire uh, people with the right background, the right uh, uh, sometimes technique background, sometimes uh, professional background, and have them 
speak freely as they would in normal life and then you know that's 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 what uh, our client will use to to train their engines what i'm getting from my conversation also is even if there are huge advances in computation power for humans to really interact with voice in this kind of seamless AI experience, it's still going to be years just because of all the data that needs to be collected. You're, you're talking about thousands of hours to train a voice assistant to be effective. And a, a working year in the United States is generally accepted as 2,000 hours. There, there's just this time component of collecting the data and getting it ready to train these models. That just seems it's it's going to lag way behind computational advances. Uh, probably. I mean, you know, there, there might be also, it might be that the, the engines themselves are, are improved. I don't know. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not working on the engine, right? We are working on the collection only. But yes, from what I see on the collection, and uh, yes, that's uh, you need hundreds of hours, thousands of hours if you want to address a specific demographics uh, and then have them, you know, understood in a particular context. That's uh, that, that, that's what we see. So yes, as uh, uh, as those voice assistants are becoming more and more global, uh, yes, they need to they need to to uh, get data sets, either public data set or private data set, or they ha- they ask company like us to produce a specific data set. And as as they go into different countries, different uh, ethnic groups, accents, uh, professions, they they for the time being they yes they need to 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 have additional data sets to to fine tune their engines. Otherwise, uh, it won't work. So yes, in in a way, it's an endless pursuit uh, pursuit for for them because they, uh, they 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 need to they need to keep improving. Yes. What what kind of people contribute their voice for these kind of data sets? If you have some classically trained actor with perfect diction, that's that's not good preparation. No, that's 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 not what uh, what we would do. So, for example, uh, if I was taking the example of software engineers uh, before, uh, if my clients wants to understand software engineers, well, I'm going to recruit software engineers for for this project, uh, and then uh, uh, put in place uh, the the technology to to record them, uh, uh, transcribe what they're saying, and then. Uh, uh, produce a, a, a complete annotated uh, data set. Uh, and then that's what the, the, the client will use to, to, to further train the engine. So yes, I mean, uh, while you guys are, uh, you know, I could imagine uh, having both of you talking about software and then you would be uh, candidates, right, for, for this kind of study. But that's, yes, that's in real life, that's, that's what we do. We, we recruit people who are uh, in the, actual uh, uh, demographics. That's, that's, this, that's the only way to produce content that uh, makes sense. I cannot ask two random people who don't know anything about software to just to read a manual about software. They, they would not have the right intonation. They would not have the, they wouldn't speak the way that you guys speak when you speak with each other. So you've been in the space for, you know, such a, such a long time and all over the globe. Where do you see where do you see it going next? Where, if you fast forward five years from now, what is this technology going to look like? Uh, I don't know. Frankly, uh, I, I wish I would know. I mean, I, I might know more about the translation side of it, that on the voice assistant side of it. 
on, on the translation side, what, what, what we see happening again is that uh, maybe in a, in a few years, maybe 1% or 2% of the content uh, will be translated by humans. That would be your advertising campaigns, your marketing web page. This one, you would never trust a machine to do that. Then maybe the next 10, 15% will be translated by a machine and reviewed by a human. But, and the rest will be fully translated by machines with uh, just a little bit of engine tuning, but no, no human in the loop as such. On the voice assistant side, it's, it's more difficult to know because uh, uh, I don't think I have a particular uh, insight on, on, on that to, to see how, how far the technology can advance as far as uh, really understanding all everybody speaking about everything. On the translation engines, are there particular pairs of languages that work particularly well? Is it something like French to English or is it like German to Spanish? Yeah, European, European, uh, 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 I mean, it really, again, it, it, it depends on the, what they call the corpora, that uh, uh, the corpus or the, the data sets, if you wish, that you have access to, right? So if you look at uh, all the main European languages, uh, there's there's a huge corpus uh, just by crawling the web that that is available, uh, and then you have like formal uh, corpus. For example, the uh, uh, European Union uh, translates everything they have in all languages, right? That's uh, in their charter, and, and they make that available, so you, you you can have access to all the translation done by European Union. So that's that's uh, millions and millions of uh, uh, translation segments. So that's uh, uh, that that has been uh, helping a lot uh, people developing engines to make them uh, uh, you know uh, very high quality uh, early on. So now if you're saying, you know, like a Korean to Indonesian, uh, I don't know whether there's any been, you know, whether there's any even a translator uh, translating from Korean to, to Indonesian, right? So that's, that's, that's just not possible. So what, what all those engines are doing now, so you would not translate from Korean to Indonesian, you would translate from Korean to English and then from English to Indonesian, but you lose both sides, right? So at the end of the day, your translation might not be very accurate, mm. but but yes, people tend to use uh, uh, you tend to use English as a uh, as a pivot. Although some of the engines nowadays uh, they they found out that uh, I think Google has uh, found out that uh, it's kind of it's like if the machine translation engines themselves uh, are creating their own intermediary language. Yeah, uh, they 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 don't actually know. Exactly what happens, but you know, with, with that's, that, that's the issue with uh, with uh, uh, deep learning, right? You you give things to to a machine, and then uh, uh, you don't really you don't really know what uh, international uh, internal representation it creates. But it seems from what Google, from what Google scientists believe that uh, their own engines are creating a. a, a language independent representation of, of the world, if you wish, so that uh, they have been able to translate, like I said before, from Korean to Indonesian, although they don't have a corpus. They, they, they have a Korean to English, they have English to Indonesian, but when they train uh, the, 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 the engine, uh, it seems that the engine will go from Korean to Indonesian, but by creating some kind of language in between. 
I don't know whether I'm, I'm, I'm very clear, but yeah, that's... Uh... Yeah, and, and it gets really philosophical quick about language, too, doesn't it? Yep, yep. Well, we're, we're closing in on our 26 minutes, so I, I want to give you an opportunity to, uh, first of all, thank you. It was very great to have you on. And also, is there anything you'd like to leave behind to the audience regarding um, how, to, how to contact you or your company or anything? Yeah, if anybody wants to contact me, my, my email address is uh, my initials, mr at uh, e2f.com, my company name, e2f.com. Uh, uh, oh, that's the shortest email ever. Okay. Yep. Perfect. 